All right, well, let's go to the scriptures today. We are in Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. And our text for today begins in Genesis 30, verse 25. We are studying the life of Jacob, in particular, his journey of faith. How God takes a man whom inherits his promises and becomes a man of faith. Jacob, having received the blessing, having connived his way into receiving the blessing from Isaac, his father, has been forced to flee from his home in the land of promise and to seek refuge with relatives in a far country, only to find that his uncle is a greedy schemer determined to exploit him. So for 14 years, Jacob toils under Laban's unscrupulous cheating. He works seven years for Rachel, the younger of Laban's daughters, to marry her. And then at the wedding feast, Laban pulls a switcheroo and gives Jacob his older daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. He takes advantage of the dark. He takes advantage of the bridal veil. He takes advantage of the inebriation at the wedding celebration. And he switches Leah for Rachel. So... Jacob then works another seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. And Laban says to Jacob, when you finished your week-long wedding celebration of having married my older daughter Leah, then we'll give you Rachel and then you have to work another seven years, to which Jacob agrees. So he has to work another seven years after Laban's deception And it's clear from the way that Jacob is deceived by Laban that it is the Lord's rebuke to his own deceit in stealing his brother's blessing. The Lord's hand of discipline is upon Jacob these 14 long years. And he is transforming Jacob into a man of faith. And we noted last time that Jacob was really at a low point. But the Lord does not abandon Jacob nor does he forget his promises to Jacob. He had promised to be with Jacob wherever he went. And he had been these 14 years, even if Jacob did not see God, even if he did not hear from the Lord, even if he could not comprehend what the Lord was doing in these long years of labor under his oppressive uncle. He had promised to bring Jacob safely back to the land. This had all happened in a meeting on the road out of the promised land when Jacob was wandering on his way. God had met him on the road. You remember that Jacob fell asleep in a nameless, dark, empty place only to have a vision of a stairway going up into heaven, seeing angels ascend and descend that stairway, and there the Lord stood beside him and made those promises to him. And now, after 14 years of toil, God delivers Jacob. Though God disciplines his own, he never fails to deliver them. So, the question for us then is what does it mean for us to know that God will deliver us? Let me give you just a few of these from our text this morning. First of all, God's unfailing deliverance means God will keep his promises. 
God will keep his promises. Chapter 30, verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? For Jacob, this is the hardship the Lord has chosen to refine his faith, oppression. But the time has come when the oppressor stands in the way of God's purposes. So Jacob has fulfilled his contract, And he asked to be discharged from Laban's service. Now, technically, Jacob is not under obligation to stay. He has worked the agreed 14 years. He agreed to work seven. He worked those. The wives were switched. And then he worked another seven that he agreed to. So he has worked off his obligation. However, the problem for Jacob is that he has no property. He has no means of livelihood All he has is a very large family, two wives, their two handmaidens, and 12 children. So when he says to Laban, send me away, Jacob is including a request for a a nest egg, if you will, to set up his own home, his own family, which is really what a benevolent relative should have done already. It's what Laban should have done originally when Jacob first arrived and when Jacob first came to him. It's what Laban should do now. And Jacob even argues, you can see in verses 29 and 30, that Laban's prosperity is because of him. You know how I've served you, how your livestock has fared with me. You had little before I came. Jacob says, it's not like like you had all of this wealth and I've just managed it. It's because... of my relationship to the Lord that you have been blessed. It's because of what I have done and because of my presence with your flocks and managing your affairs that you have gone from little to increasing greatly. In other words, Jacob is saying, in reality, Laban, you know as well as I do, I don't owe you, you kind of owe me. The core, the heart of this conversation is Jacob's request in verse thirty. When will I provide for my own household? This is an appeal to Laban's conscience. Stop cheating me. But Laban recognizes, of course, that he is experiencing this prosperity because of God's blessing Jacob. Jacob would be taking the prosperity with him. Jacob is the proverbial goose that lays the golden egg. And if Jacob goes, there goes the prosperity. So Laban is determined to keep Jacob on the payroll. And what we see here is Laban trying to manipulate Jacob to renegotiate his contract. If I have found favor in your sight, name your wages and I will give it. That sounds generous. It may sound polite, But it's really a patronizing, uh, no, you may not leave. 
If you do leave, it will be empty-handed. So leave with nothing or continue in servitude to me. That's really what Laban's saying. Furthermore, Laban has the soldiers to force the issue. We'll see this later in the next chapter. Laban has a a military force. So Jacob is still at Laban's mercy. That's the bottom line. He's still under Laban's thumb. Though he's not under obligation, he has no means of his own to go out on his own. Look at verse 31. He said, what shall I give you? This is Laban again speaking. What shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So Laban again says, what shall I give you? Name name your wage. Jacob says, you shall not give me anything. In other words, I I don't want anything from you. Which I take to mean, Jacob is saying, I am not going to enter into another wage for X number of years of labor with you. Jacob is not going to make that deal again. So he says, I I don't want anything from you. In other words, I don't want anything that's currently yours. Here's the deal I'll make. Give me out of the flock the speckled goats and spotted or striped and the black lambs. Now, goats were normally solid black or solid brown. Sheep were normally white. So the speckled or spotted or striped goats, those that have white on them, and the black lambs are rarities. They're rarities. These required certain genetic traits that were recessive and combinations to get speckled or spotted goats and black lambs. Jacob is saying he will take the low percentage yield as a wage. He will continue to pasture Laban's flocks until he has earned his own property, his own share, at which point he will leave with whatever speckled goats and whatever black lambs have been bred. So in other words, Jacob is not setting a a, a timeline on this. He's not committing himself to any certain number of years of servitude. He's simply saying that once the speckled and the spotted goats that have been bred For however many months and years that will take, once they accumulate to a number enough for me, I'll just take those. So that might be years. It might be years for that to happen. And he points out that to Laban, this has built-in accountability. When you come to inspect my flocks, at whatever point I decide to leave, when you come to inspect my flocks, 
if there are any solid black or brown goats, if there are any white sheep, you'll know that I've stolen, that I've been dishonest. No wonder Laban says, well, good, let it be as you've said. And you can almost see Laban walking away, kind of chuckling, rubbing his hands together, convinced that once again, he has gotten the better of his naive nephew, Jacob. Now, there are a couple of ways to understand what happens here with Laban going through the flock and separating the goats and the sheep. And I think the best understanding is this. Jacob is proposing that he separate the rarities from the flock. Whatever rarities they produce will become added to his claim. Meanwhile, he will pasture these flocks separately, not allowing the two flocks to mate. So Jacob is saying, I'll go through and I will separate all of the rarities, all of the speckled, spotted, striped goats, and all of the black lambs, and I will pasture these two groups, these two different flocks separately. And Laban is good with this because Jacob's gains will either, number one, take several decades to accumulate. It will take decades for such a small number of goats to produce enough speckled or spotted goats for Jacob to acquire anything worth leaving with. And the same with the sheep, to get enough black lambs for Jacob to really have accumulated any holdings will take years, which means basically Jacob is signing up without putting a year on it, a number of years, Jacob is getting stuck. He's going to be there a very long time. Secondly, he is good with it because if Jacob decides to fly the coop early, if he decides to go ahead and head out on his own, his gains will be extremely insignificant. They certainly won't hurt Laban's holdings, and they'll be so little that Jacob will never do that. The gains will be so insignificant in a short period of time that Jacob will never head out. So Laban then, thinking he has made this great deal with Jacob... And it is on the surface. Laban not leaving anything to chance or for any chance of foul play on Jacob's part separates the flocks himself. And that's what verse 35 is recording here. Laban himself that very day removed all the male goats that were striped and spotted and so on. So Laban goes through and he separates the flocks himself and he sends the rarities three days away under his son's charge meaning that Jacob cannot pull a fast one and implying that those flocks will probably not breed very much under his son's care because Laban's whole point is to keep Jacob around as long as he can to to skim off of the blessings that Jacob is receiving from the Lord. So Jacob now is left with solid dark goats and white sheep to pasture. And to somehow, out of this flock, get speckled goats and black lambs. It becomes a game of wits. Look at verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. 
And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. Before the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So Laban's plotting actually works in Jacob's favor. The three days journey between them meant to undermine Jacob in reality allows him to breed the flocks without interference. Now, one of his methods is an old wives' tale, a myth, that what the animals see while mating will affect their offspring. So, if black goats see sticks with white spots cut out of them, they will produce offspring with spots and stripes. Likewise, if white sheep see black goats while they're mating, they will produce black lambs. It's kind of like our old myth about wanting a boy or a girl. Now, I don't need to see any hands, but think back. For those of you who maybe had had a boy or two boys, or like me, had three boys, and then wanted a little girl, if possible, you get to that point, you become pregnant, and you begin to think, well, maybe the Lord will bless us with a boy this time, or maybe a girl. And so you and your wife look at each other, or you and your husband, you look at each other, and you say well, honey, maybe if you just dressed in pink or maybe if we paint the baby's room blue, that will affect the pregnancy. Now, I, I have to give full disclosure here that I have three boys and when my wife and I became pregnant with our fourth child, we, uh, there was this temptation. We did not do it, okay, but we, there was this temptation that, well, maybe, honey, if you wear pink, it's just, you know, we're just grasping the straws here, but if you wear pink, no, we didn't do it. We, of course, we recognize that doesn't work, though we did have a little girl. But in any case, that, it's that kind of myth. It's that kind of idea. His other method is very deliberate breeding to ensure that the rarities, the speckled and striped goats, the black lambs, are the healthiest and the strongest of the herds. Is Jacob being deceitful here? Is Jacob scheming? Is he falling once again into some underhanded way of dealing with things? Some believe that he is. Some Bible scholars believe that's what Jacob's doing. Some also think that Jacob has bought into some sort of pagan method of breeding, practicing a kind of white magic, if you will, to get the results that he wants. Very much like Rachel in the chapter before tried to use mandrakes, which were the magical fertile fruit. She ate these and tried to use them to become pregnant when she was barren. It's possible that Jacob is, that he is scheming. It's possible that, that using these sticks, using the sticks is certainly a pagan myth of some sort that he's using. If so, if this is the case, then once again we see that God is faithful in spite of Jacob's weaknesses, his ignorance, and his sin. That God is working things out anyway. 
But we're going to learn something in the next chapter that this text right now doesn't tell us yet that leads me to think that this isn't the case, that Jacob is not acting on an independent scheme and that he hasn't bought into some kind of voodoo magic to get the breeding results that he wants. Let's just say at this point that it's very clear that God commandeers Jacob's methods, his breeding methods, to bless him immensely, to make him prosper really miraculously. The result in verse 43, the terms you can see there, increased greatly, literally means to spill over in abundance. The same word that's used in verse 30 up above to describe what has happened with Laban's flocks under Jacob's care. You have increased greatly. You have spilled over with abundance everywhere I've turned. It's the same phrase that the Lord uses in his promise to Jacob at Bethel on the road in that nowhere place where Jacob sees the ladder and he uh, the stairway and he sees the angels ascending and descending. When God spoke to him, he said, you shall spread abroad. It's the same you, phrase. You shall increase greatly. You will spill over with abundance. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. In fact, Jacob's goats and sheep are so robust that he can barter them for servants and other investments like camels and donkeys. That's how he becomes someone in verse 43 with large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels and donkeys is he is using his flock as bartering to gain these things. So this is the next part of God's fulfilling his promises originally to Abraham. All the way back to Genesis chapter 12 where God called Abram, changed his name later to Abraham, but called Abram and he said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you descendants, a people. I'm going to make a nation out of you. They will be like the stars of the heaven, the sands of the shore. I'm going to give you a land and all of the earth will be blessed through you. This is the next step in fulfilling that promise. Jacob has already spilled over with family, descendants, 11 sons and one daughter. He will have his last son once he returns to the promised land. He is now spilling over with prosperity, with wealth. Even in the midst of oppressive circumstances, God is keeping his promises. God is making good on his purposes in your life and in mine. You might even say that you and I really are the inheritors of the blessings to Abraham. That last one, through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. That's us. Our very existence, our gathering here as a church is proof that God has kept that promise. God is still keeping his promises. God will deliver us according to his promises. He will reverse oppression. He will bless his people. Because this is so, we must act in faith. What does it mean that God delivers unfailingly 
means we must act in faith. Look at chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Let's stop right here. Six years have passed. We get the timeline later on in this chapter. But six years have now passed since Jacob negotiated this deal with Laban about the goats. For six years, Jacob's own flocks have been prospering abundantly, spilling over, increasing greatly. Laban is no longer gleaning blessing off of Jacob. Laban's flocks continue to be the same, mediocre at best, in terms of their strength, in terms of their breeding and production. And Laban, his sons, see Jacob as stealing their inheritance. Jacob is somehow tricking us. He is somehow stealing from our father, which means he's stealing from us. Laban is also jealous. He does not look on Jacob with favor anymore, which means Laban begins to give Jacob the cold shoulder, the old evil eye. This is a significant change, probably because Jacob has become an equal and therefore a competitor, perhaps even greater in property and holdings. In verse 3, this is the first word in the story from the Lord in 20 years. Think about it. All of these long years, nothing has been recorded about God speaking or revealing himself at all. And yet now, the Lord speaks to Jacob and he says, it's time to go. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. But Jacob knows not to trust Laban, especially having outwitted him as he has. This will lead to reprisals, and Laban still has the forces to make departure difficult for Jacob. So Jacob, seeking to obey the divine command to return to the land, makes a plan. Look at verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. 
I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion of inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob's first step is to confide in Leah and Rachel. And he makes charges against Laban. God has been with me. He makes these charges. He has changed my wages. So during this six years, we now get a retrospective. During this six years, Laban has continued to try to change the negotiation. If the, if the goats were producing and breeding uh, spotted goats, he would say, no, 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 no. I'm not going with the spot. You're not getting the spotted goats anymore. The striped goats. He kept changing the wages. Jacob says 10 times. He's tried to cheat me during these six years. So Laban has continued to manipulate. He has continued to cheat. But notice that Jacob acknowledges God for the first time in 20 years. For the first time, He speaks of God. God is at the center of his considerations. God has not permitted. God has taken away. God has given. Think the refining discipline has had its effect? Jacob is now focused on what God is doing. And he's giving God credit. And then he shares with Leah and Rachel a divine communication he received in the form of a dream or a vision. Jacob doesn't say he was sleeping. The idea here is that he was taken into a vision. He lifted up my eyes and I saw this. Look again at verse 10. It's in the breeding season. I lift up my eyes. I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I... I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, return to the land of your kindred. When does this take place? It takes place back in chapter 30, verses 25, 26, 27, 28, sometime in this time frame when Joseph was born. We now find out that the Lord actually spoke to Jacob at the end of the 14 years, which means the Lord's word in chapter 31, verse 3, where he comes and says, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you, is actually the second call for Jacob to leave to return home. Two things then, back in chapter 30, verse 25 and following, solidify Jacob's approach to Laban. Number one, Joseph is born. Rachel now has a son, which means they are now bound from Laban's perspective. Rachel could not be kept with Laban if Jacob left because she has now Jacob's son. The second thing is that God has spoken to him. God has appeared to Jacob in a dream. 
This sheds some light on why Jacob proposes the deal with Laban that he does for the speckled goats and for the black lambs, which is why I tend to think Jacob is not scheming by breeding the flocks in the way he does. And it doesn't mean that God ordered the striped, uh, the spotted sticks, the sticks method for the breeding, but it would seem to say that Jacob is looking to the Lord for the results, for success, not to his methods per se, even if the method reflected some kind of myth. Jacob is already acting in faith. For six years, Jacob has been demonstrating faith in his breeding methods, and God has been fulfilling his promises. He's been acting on the word of God of Bethel where you set up a pillar, where I promised you I would deliver you and I would keep you and I would take you back to the land. He is acting in faith on that promise. Well, what about Leah and Rachel? Well, Leah and Rachel recognize that dad is a greedy jerk. They recognize it and they they basically say, he has mistreated you, he has tried to cheat you, he has treated us like slaves, he has essentially sold us. And then he has squandered any kind of inheritance. For the first time, we say Jacob, Leah, and Rachel acting in unity. And we see them acting in faith together as the family of promise. By condemning Laban's treatment of Jacob and themselves, they ally themselves with Jacob. They are saying, Jacob, we are your family not our father's family. And they are acknowledging Jacob's God as their God. We see, we know, we understand that the Lord, your God, has blessed you and he has taken from our father and given to you. He is on your side. Look at verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob leaves. He gets ready and he goes. And he takes advantage of the fact that Laban is out shearing the sheep. He's somewhere else, further out of touch, out of reach. Rachel takes the opportunity to steal the household gods. These are idols of the family. Jacob sends all of the flocks and all of his family ahead and he puts himself in the rear guard. This is true leadership on Jacob's part. We already see that Jacob is leading again, don't we? When God at the end of the 14 years gives Jacob a vision, Jacob suddenly becomes a leader again. He's negotiated by faith this deal with Laban. God has blessed him and now... He comes to Leah and Rachel and he says, this is the deal, it's time for us to go. They say, yes, let's go. Jacob sends them ahead and puts himself in the rear guard. This is for safety. Jacob is putting himself at risk. He's obeying at great risk 
And I put risk in quotation marks because from God's perspective, there's no such thing as risk. But from our perspective, there is. And you know it as well as I do. That when we see the promises of God still in the concrete actions of life, once putting one foot in front of the other, taking one step after another, from our feeling, it is risk. In Jacob's perspective, I know God's going to deliver. I know he's made these promises. But on, from the street level perspective, this is risky. But I'm putting myself in the rear guard. Jacob decides to obey the Lord's call and put his safety in the Lord's hands, which is what the Lord calls for every one of us to do. Isn't that what the gospel does? Isn't that what the gospel calls us to? Whoever would follow me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That is a life of self-denial. That is a life of dying to self. That is a life of risk, quote unquote. Whoever seeks to keep his own life will lose it, but whoever for my sake loses his life will keep it. But you gotta lose it first. You gotta lose it first. And from our perspective, that is risk. Jacob demonstrates great faith by just leaving. God delivers. God will not fail. We must act in faith. And when God calls us to go, we must go. And when God calls us to stay, we must stay, as the case may be. Jacob's case, it was time to go. You're not called to understand how, We're not called to understand when God will deliver, only to trust him and to walk. It is faith that pleases God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. We must act in faith. We must trust and take God at his word. Thirdly, God's unfailing deliverance means justice for his people means justice for his people. Look at verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, don't contradict him. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, here it comes, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? That phrase, what have you done, were the first words out of Jacob's mouth when he woke up next to Leah instead of Rachel after his wedding night. What have you done? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have, uh, might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. 
It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? So God comes to Laban after Laban's heard that Jacob has flown the coop. There's about six days between them. It was a three days journey. Jacob has been gone for three days. Takes seven days for Jacob, I mean for Laban, hard riding to catch up with him. But God speaks to Laban and says, leave Jacob alone. Don't contradict him. But upon arriving, Laban again tries to manipulate. He gives him a guilt trip. He takes the high ground. He makes Jacob look like a bad guy. I would have sent you out with a party if you had just come to me and told me. In the end, these missing gods, these idols, are Laban's only hope. If he can convict, indict, if you will, in front of the families, the two clans, if he can indict Jacob and prove that Jacob has stolen something from him, what's the result? Jacob is now indentured in, in servitude to him. There's going to be another consequence that Jacob will bring up here. But this is his last straw. This is all he can grab at here to try to get Jacob to stay, which leads to this accusation, you have stolen my gods, verse 31. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force, that you wouldn't let me leave with Leah and Rachel and my children. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Jacob basically turns this into a courtroom. And he says, you've got to prove it. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and in the tent of the two female servants, and, uh, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Went into and touched. is basically rifling. Laban goes in through all their possessions and starts rifling through everything. Rachel is sitting on them. Now, I think what's being pictured here is that the camel saddle is on the ground and Rachel is sitting on the saddle, which is on the ground inside her tent. And the idols are in the saddlebags. And she says, forgive me, my Lord, for not rising because I'm having my period. I am on my menstrual cycle. That's what she says. Therefore, I'm not going to stand up. So Laban finishes rifling and can't find anything. Now, it's possible that Rachel is lying, that she, in fear of being found out, comes up with a good fib to remain seated and keep the idols hidden. More probably, it is the truth, and she is menstruating on the idols. This is degrading Laban and his gods. Now, again, some Bible scholars look at this, and they say, 
this was wicked of Rachel, this was wrong. She put the whole program at risk by stealing these idols. Again, it could be, but there's no word of condemnation. I think it's kind of funny, myself. I think it is reciprocity. I think Laban's gods are getting exactly what they deserve. And that God is making a point in the book of Genesis by recording what Rachel has done. That in stealing the gods, she is, she is rejecting Laban and his gods and choosing Jacob and his one true God. And so she is menstruating on the idols. It's degrading. And it's revenge against Laban for his treatment of her, for his treatment of her husband Jacob, and, her disre- and his disregard for their God, the God of Jacob. The result is public shame for Laban, who is made to look false. He is made to to look as though he is an idiot, making unsubstantiated accusations against Jacob. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What, has, what was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. This gives you a picture of what Jacob says when he sa- uses the word serve. I have served you. It's been hard labor. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock and you have changed my wages 10 times. Here's the timeline, we get it. 20 years. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So Jacob lays in to Laban after 20 years. And the point of this argumentation in what has now become a court before all of the kinsmen is now to justify Jacob's actions in leaving. Jacob is shown to be right and justified in fleeing from Laban and his scheming ways and to not have trusted him. Verse 43, then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, but what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom, I have, whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone, here we go again, a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there before, uh, by the heap. Laban called it Yagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid. 
and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness. And I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Finally, God is on Jacob's side. And Laban's reaction is probably due to God's warning in verse 24. Do not contradict Jacob. His actions are self-preservation. He sees what's happening. The power has shifted. And in fact, by making this pact with Jacob, Laban is acknowledging Jacob as an equal. No longer a servant, but an equal, the head of a family, a clan. He sees what's happening and he wants to make sure that Jacob does not return with vengeance for these 20 years of cheating. Laban gets what he deserves. He was God's instrument of discipline, but he must also face God's justice. God's blessing goes with his people and Jacob now has his own household. This is always true in scripture. In fact, what is being played out in Jacob's life here will be played out among the people of Israel down through the centuries as God's people. You can think of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is given a prophecy of God that the Babylonians are coming and that God, first of all, Habakkuk begins with a complaint. There is injustice in the land. People are taking advantage of the poor. They're oppressing the needy. They are murdering, they are cheating one another. Where is the justice, God, that you've promised to your people? God says, I'm going to bring justice. I'm bringing the Babylonians. They will come in and they're going to decimate my people. To which Habakkuk looks and goes, that's a problem because I'm concerned about evil and justice and yet you are using a people that are more evil than your own people to enact vengeance on your people or discipline on your people. And God says, don't worry, I'll take care of the Babylonians too. When I'm done using the Babylonians as discipline on my own people to bring them back to myself, I will then judge the Babylonians. It's the same principle we see here. And keep in mind that God favors the oppressed. If you search your Bibles, you will find that God is on the side of the oppressed and the downtrodden. Time and again, God humbles the proud oppressor and delivers and exalts the humble victim who cries out for deliverance. Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 146, verse 5 and following. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, 
who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God sees your way. God knows where you are oppressed. God knows where you suffer. If you search your Bibles, you will also find that God uses such oppression in the lives of his people to work good in their lives and to put his own glory on display. Perhaps the greatest example of this is the nation of Israel's 400 years of slavery in Egypt that comes at the end of the book of Genesis. In Jacob's own lifetime, he moves down to Egypt, again, out of the land of promise. And following his his sojourn in Egypt and his death, his people will live for 400 years. And while they live in Egypt, God's covenant people endure the harshest abuse, oppression, and injustice. And then God sees them, Exodus chapter 3. During those many days, the king of Egypt died And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God subjected his people for 400 years to oppression and exploitation so that he could distinguish and exalt Israel as his own people by decimating Pharaoh and the Egyptian world. This is what happens to Jacob. Jacob is delivered. God's deliverance is unfailing. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that God's unfailing deliverance means that you and I won't suffer. Or necessarily that our suffering, whether it's oppression or other pain, will be short-lived. It may be long. It may be 20 years. It may be 400 years. Sometimes we die in suffering. But ultimately and always, God keeps his promises. And God delivers his people. Deliverance from Egypt didn't mean that no one died in those 400 years. There were some of Jacob's descendants who never knew freedom. They were both born and died as slaves in Egypt. At the same time, we may very well know God's deliverance from circumstances that we face. I'm convinced that we do and that we will. There are times in our lives when we face difficulties, including oppression, that we see God's delivering hand. God takes us out. God sees. God hears our cries. And he responds and he reaches down and he delivers us. But what I want to be careful of is that we don't see God's deliverance according to the eyes of what many preach as a prosperity gospel. That things will always be made right. That if you rub the genie lamp just right, God will pop out and he will make everything okay. We begin with the gospel. 
Has God not already delivered us? Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God has already delivered us from the tyranny of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves of Christ. And as Jesus' people, we are awaiting a final, ultimate deliverance. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to Titus 2, verses 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What was the appearance of that grace? Jesus. He was the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that all peoples will be blessed through you. That was the grace of God that has appeared. It has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's our age, our year, our day. Waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works in the midst of oppression, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, his own possession who are zealous for good works. God is training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So God's unfailing deliverance means justice for his people. Let me close with a parable that Jesus told. It's found in Luke chapter 18, verses one through eight. It's the parable of a widow. And chapter 18, verse one says that he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. You feel like losing heart? The news will make you lose heart. But listen to what Jesus said. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, though I am a calloused, unfeeling, dishonest jerk. Though that is true, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God, if an unrighteous judge will eventually give in to get a widow off of his back, what about God who cares about justice, who is the God of justice? How will he respond? Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, 
When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The question is not whether or not God will give justice to us as his people, whether or not he will rule the world in righteousness. But when the Son of Man comes, and that's a title of judgment, when the Son of Man comes to judge humanity, will he find faith on earth? God's deliverance means he will keep his promises. It means that we must act in faith. And it means that he will bring justice for his people. Can we have the hope that Jacob had? Yes. Because we are inheritors of the covenant promises as his church, as his people. Amen.